Well, good morning. It's good to, good to be here. Good to see so many familiar faces, friends, former students, sometimes both. It's, it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to gather together as, as God's people. It's, uh, it's a great blessing to know that from wherever we're coming this morning, from uh, whatever we've brought this week, that we are coming together because Jesus is our shared treasure. And that's a great privilege uh, that we can do that together. So thank you for the opportunity. As I was preparing for this morning, I was going through some old sermon files. And I was sort of surprised to learn that it's been almost four years since I last stood on this stage. I think it was for an Advent sermon. Four years. That's, uh, that's longer than I would have guessed. Longer than I thought. A lot has changed in, in four years. In your life, I'm sure. Certainly in mine. Give a quick recap as a way of intro here. I turned 40 years old last month. I know I, I, know I don't look it, but I, 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 it was a bit of a, a, t- a turning point in my life. I, I'm now a, a proud, slightly defeated member of the middle age club. I already had the hairdo, but uh, I, I'm now doing my best to, to fill out the profile a little more completely. Uh, so, my, so my joints and my back are starting to ache more than they used to. I'm starting to uh, wax nostalgic about the good old days more than I used to. I've even pulled out the when I was your age line on my daughters once in a while, which is a sin I promised myself I would never commit when I was younger. I am now the father of one adolescent daughter. I'd go on, but I'm now told it's inappropriate to talk about them from the stage, so I'll stop right there. She might be rolling her eyes, but I won't look. In the last four years, my beloved Calgary Flames have made the playoffs. For the first time in forever, I think. I thought I would be a grandfather before I thought that would start to happen again. And of course, in the last four years, the, uh, the ministry of Bethany College has come to a close. And... Many of you will know that story, some won't. Uh, and I, I do realize that for many here, I'm pretty closely identified with Bethany. So, so seeing me up here might be a reminder of that, might invite a few questions. So I'll begin this morning by addressing just two of those, and then we'll get to what I really want to share. First, some of you are probably wondering, what are you doing these days? So quickly, the answer to that is I'm trying to finish a PhD. Uh, I began a program way back in... 2008, uh, through a seminary that's kind of owned by the European Baptists, registered through the Free University of Amsterdam. And part of my attraction at first to that program was I could do it part-time. I could continue at Bethany, pick away over the years, and so I did that. I have over the past six years. Progress has obviously slowed in the last uh, two years with the situation at Bethany, but I, uh, I now have time to, to dig in in a more focused way. The, the topic of what I'm studying is faith development among young adults. Uh, Specifically, I'm looking at the question of the coming-of-age process in the contemporary kind of Western world and why that's often a turbulent time for keeping the faith. And I want to ask some questions about how well our theology is equipping us in that area. That's the basic overview. Uh, So I don't yet have a lot of clarity as to what the long-term future looks like for Shelly and I and our girls. Uh, but I do know that God led me into this, this, uh, this degree program. So we're going to see that through and trust that God will shine as much light as he needs to 
for whatever step is next. This is much easier to say than to do, by the way, but more on that as the sermon unfolds. Second, some of you may be wondering what's going on. Is anything going on at, at Bethany in the aftermath of the closure? Um, if you went there, you wouldn't see much. Pretty empty. If you've read the latest board update on the line, you would see that there's, uh, there are conversations about the future that are taking place. Uh, there's a group of alumni and sort of interested parties that are, have been blessed by the board to investigate some possibilities for a, few, for a future model that would look very different, but might yet be able to function under the banner of Bethany. So that's not concluded yet, but there's an exploration process begun. That's kind of all I know. I'm not part of this conversation, and that's pretty much all I know, but it is happening. If you want more information, I would encourage you to go to the website and have a look. I would consider myself a prayerful cheerleader for anything that could come uh, out of the rubble, so to speak, of Bethany. And I would invite you to give your feedback, if you, if you have it, to the board, and you can get all the information you need on the website. What is beyond doubt to me is that we as a community of MB churches need something. The church's need for discipleship, for mentoring, for theological formation is not going away. I would say it's more acute than ever. And we need to find some way to make this a priority. Whatever that looks like. So I, I don't know how much Bethany has been on your radar over the past months. Maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, maybe not at all. Maybe some of you never heard the word before this morning. But however much it's been on your radar, it's been on mine every day for the past year and a half. And there's not really a a way to dress it up. It's been a a bit of a difficult journey. It's, It's been hard to see a ministry that I and others believed in come to an end. It's been hard to see the pain that it's meant for a lot of people that I care about. It's been hard to face the realities of failure and of regret. It's been hard to confront the uncertainty of the future. And most of all, it's been hard to discern what God's up to in the midst of what's been a long period of upheaval. To borrow an image that I'll return to in a moment, it's felt like a long stretch in the wilderness. So when Bruce first approached me, about contributing to this passage's sermon series. And I've listened to them all, and I'm very aware that it'll, <laughs> it'll seem a bit disjointed. My first response to Bruce was, are you sure? Are you sure you want me speaking about something that's current in my life right now? He said, yes. And so here I am, and so any problems that ensue, they can be blamed on Bruce. Okay? That's clear. This morning's not about Bethany. This morning's about God using the Bible to challenge and to encourage us. I want to share how he's been doing that in my life. I trust he will use his word to speak to each of us. This past week, I was emailing a former student, now a church leader, who asked me how I would introduce the Bible to a student, a high school student, who's not familiar with the Bible, has no plans to study it formally, and just wants an entry point. Where should I start? What would I say? What I said in a much longer email that I won't repeat here is that the Bible's a story. It's the biggest story. It's the truest story that all the smaller stories of our lives are meant to fit inside of. 
He's the central character. He's the primary storyteller. He's the one who will close the book after the final page has been written. So the question that we need to ask whenever we read the Bible is, how is my story brought into focus by this story? How is my story brought into focus by this story? Because our stories only become intelligible as we interpret and live them in light of God's story. So, I'm running a bit of a risk of repetition this morning. I'm not sure if there's going to be slides that show up. Here we go. title is The One Who Causes You to Hunger this morning. And I'm going back to Deuteronomy. I know you spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy. I've listened to a bunch of the sermons. You've had some good extended soaking in the book of Deuteronomy. So there's a risk in going back there uh, this morning. But as I always tell my kids, I only repeat things if they're important. Parents, right? I also tell them that I repeat them to myself because they don't listen, but I can't possibly apply that here. I don't know you well enough. So, we're back to Deuteronomy. And we're going to zero in on a part of the story that we could broadly talk about under the heading of a wilderness. Is one of the strange features of this big, true story is that the wilderness is a bit of a recurring theme. It repeats over and over again. So my goal this morning is to ask the question, how do our lives come into focus if we understand they will involve time in the wilderness? Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 5, if you have your Bibles or you can follow on the screen. And I want you to have the following questions in your mind as we read. Why does God lead his children to places like this? And who is this one who causes us to hunger? Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Very quick review of where uh, these words fit. Moses is speaking. These are his final words to the generation that came up out of Egypt. The generation that saw God's mighty, liberating power at work firsthand. They saw the plagues. They saw the waters part. They saw the Egyptian horse and rider cast into the sea. They saw the smoke. They heard the thunder on Mount Sinai. And this is the generation that was led, confusingly, into the wilderness, not to the land they've been promised, not to the milk and the honey, to the wilderness. I want you to try to get a visual in your mind as to what this would have looked like, what it would have felt like. I want you to imagine the dust and the heat and the thirst and the hunger. Imagine if it was the first thing you saw when you got out of your tent in the morning 
Imagine the questions that might have started to seep into your mind. Where is this guy taking us? Where is this guy, Moses, taking us? Where is God taking us? Surely, this can't be the way. We need to feel this. We can read backwards and we can say, oh yeah, wilderness, yeah, I know it was bad, but they got out of that eventually. But they didn't know that. They were just hungry. They were just thirsty. They were just tired. Eventually, they make their way to the foot of Mount Sinai and they camp there for a few months. Well, Moses goes to meet with the Lord. Eventually, he comes down, but by now, they've become impatient. Aaron's made idols out of their jewelry. And the relationship between God and his people reaches a boiling point. Moses intercedes, but people die. New tablets are made, and they finally prepare to leave for Canaan, but the road still goes through the wilderness. And they don't like it. They don't like the food. They don't like Moses' leadership style. The spies go in to check out the promised land, and the people, with a few exceptions, are pretty much convinced that it's a lost cause. They're doomed. And finally, God's had enough. This generation will die in the wilderness, he says. They will wander, and they will wander, and they will wander some more. Forty more years of wilderness. So I want to begin by asking the obvious question that occurs to most people reading this story. Why? Why the wilderness? These people have suffered for 400 years in Egypt. They're due for some milk and honey. Egypt to Canaan should be a fairly quick trip, less than two weeks. And God's promised good things, hasn't he? Blessing, abundance, nationhood, stars in the sky, and all that good stuff, right? Why does he cause them to hunger? The problem is we get two, apparently two, two different answers. First one is in Numbers 14. So if you, if you want to flip back there, I think it's going to be on the screen as well. The answer is punishment. Why are they there? God's punishing them. It's God's response to the faithlessness of his people. They do wrong, and the result is wilderness. It's kind of the equivalent of the angry parent saying to the disobedient child, you go to your room and you think about what you've done for 40 years. Parents don't, I don't advise that, I don't advise that. Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. And I'll make you into a great nation, greater and stronger than they. I think we hear the echoes of the story of Noah here, right? Wipe the slate clean, start over again. Moses eventually talks God out of this plan. Another bizarre part of the story, but we'll sidestep that one for today. So instead of total destruction, God calls for the wilderness. Skip ahead a few verses, Numbers 14.32. As for you, this is the generation that came up out of Egypt, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. So the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins. 
and you will know what it is like to have me against you. Wow. These are strong words. Angry words. Words that say loud and clear, this wasn't supposed to happen. You should have believed Joshua and Caleb. You should, have, you should not have complained. You should have had faith that God could do what he promised. And because you didn't hear wilderness. The wilderness is punishment. But the text that we just read before, Deuteronomy 8, seems to point in a different direction. Here, the answer is the wilderness is some kind of a test. And God wanted to see what was in the hearts of his people. In other words, God led them into the wilderness. God intended the wilderness. It wasn't a reaction. It was part of the plan. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands. This is challenging for us. It seems to suggest that God causes us to hunger. In some ways, the numbers text, as as gruesome and as confusing as it is, it makes more sense. It's a direct relationship, cause, effect, sin, punishment, end of story. But Deuteronomy seems to suggest that God intended. There's things that God wanted that only could take place in the wilderness. It points to the God who causes us to hunger. Over, over, my, over my 12 years of working at Bethany, I had the privilege of teaching first-year students an introductory theology course. Some of you have taken it. Sorry about the review. One of the questions that always got people fired up was this. How can God be sovereign and people still be free? It's a big question. Puzzled the greatest Christian minds for centuries. We kind of sense as soon as we start to think about it that the implications are pretty big. If God controls everything, are we just kind of acting out a predetermined script? If we're truly free, does that mean God's not really in control? How do we wrestle this one through? And students tended to run in both directions. Some were really, really eager to preserve God's sovereignty. They, they, would, they would insist that everything that happens happens because God wants it to. Good stuff, awful stuff, everything in between. All of life was the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. Everything that happened, even if it was horrific, happened because it contributes to some mysterious jigsaw puzzle that we couldn't fully understand. So no matter what happened, it was always part of the plan. Others were bothered by this perspective. Wait a minute, they would ask, what does... Does that mean God causes things like cancer and divorce and earthquakes? What about all the horrors of history? We just came through the 70th anniversary of Hiroshima, right? What about things like that? The Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, 9-11. Did God want these things? Did all these dead bodies cause some greater good that we can't see? What about people who don't know Jesus? God not wants them to know him? 
What about our sin? Does God want that? Surely there's some stuff happening that God doesn't want. And usually a pretty vigorous debate would follow. I remember as a younger person, I, I was pretty fired up about this debate. I was really eager for an answer. I was pretty convinced that I was right. And I was passionately convinced that God had given me the duty of convincing others that they were wrong. But as I've walked with this one, the students over the years, I've become more and more convinced the Bible doesn't really solve this dilemma for us. And neither should we. When a student would ask me, as they inevitably would every year, hey, you MBs, are you Calvinists or are you Arminians? I would usually say we've never really had a, a declared position on that one. We believe God is sovereign. We believe that we are free. And this leaves a remainder of mystery. And we've usually been okay with that. I hope I wasn't being evasive. If I had an hour, I'd want to go into more detail. But it's texts like this morning's that lead me to this conclusion. Both answer the question, why is Israel in the wilderness? Numbers 14 says they're there because they blew it. Deuteronomy 8 says it was the will of God. And if you think about it, this is exactly how most of us experience life, isn't it? Most of us, when we look backwards, on our lives, we look and we can see something like a string of pearls with events and choices and relationships and things that happen in our lives that are all linked together by the choices that we've made. Some of these pearls shine They fill us with joy. Others make us ashamed of what we've done. But in the midst of these choices, we who follow Jesus see another hand at work as well. We see God leading, God rebuking, God encouraging, purifying, ultimately changing us. And this, I think, is at the heart of the more important question than why the wilderness is what's supposed to be happening in the wilderness. And the answer is simple. God wanted to see what was in the hearts of his people. The image on the screen is about the children of Israel gathering manna in the wilderness. This, from God's perspective, was about provision, about humbling and testing his people. Can you imagine going to bed every night, every night, and wondering if there'd be food on the ground in the morning? you imagine coming to terms with the fact you can't do anything to take care of your survival day after day? This is how God was able to see what was in their hearts. The wilderness was a diagnostic that tested the sincerity of Israel's faith. And times of disorientation still do this, don't they? So when we lose our footing, when we lose our bearings, that what's inside of us comes out. Most of us have learned to manage the face that we present to the world fairly well. We've learned our social cues. We've learned how much we can share about ourselves before it starts to creep people out. At least I hope, well, maybe not. (laughs) We've learned to bury the fear and the doubts and the sin. But when we find ourselves in a situation where we lose control, where our normal strategies don't work, and where our best efforts come to nothing. And we're under that kind of pressure. In the wilderness, 
what's really in our hearts becomes visible. So when we stand before God with nothing but our need, that we learn whether trust is a word that we've learned to mouth or whether it's a conviction that can sustain us. Let me skip ahead a bit here. Whoever's in the slides can hopefully track with me. Each of these sermons in the Passages series has been part Bible study, part personal testimony. I've listened to all of them and I've heard great lessons and very encouraging. This morning's obviously no different. The theme of wilderness is not abstract for me. Maybe not for you as well. I suspect I'm not alone. Maybe you find yourself in a place of disorientation or uncertainty this morning. God's invitation to you is to recognize this place as an opportunity to see what's in your heart. Because your life can be evidence that God can make fruit grow in the wilderness. A few quick takeaways. Lessons to be learned in the wilderness. The first thing I would suggest is to take an honest look inward in the wilderness. It's a place where we're alone with ourselves, forced to look at things we might not pay attention to in the busyness of life. It's a time to see what's in our hearts. It might mean facing something we don't want to face about ourselves. It might mean looking at sin. I, I don't think we're meant to conclude that every trial in our life is linked to a sin. There's lots of biblical evidence that would point in a different direction than that. And if we do that, we, make, we end up blaming the victim for every bad thing that happens, and we can't do that. But the wilderness is an invitation to take stock, to examine the state of our lives, to have a fresh look at our priorities, our relationships, the things that we're choosing to invest in. It's a chance to say before God, here I am. What needs to change? Second, take a trusting look upward. First inward, upward. We're not alone in the wilderness. It's an ironic truth in scripture, but the wilderness is often the place where God is most present, most available. If we find ourselves in a place like that, it's usually a very good opportunity to invite God to speak, to say I'm listening. One author that I was reading recently put it this way, Jesus asks us to wait because we often need to be reshaped by God's grace and power before we can move into a new season. God places us in waiting rooms so he can have our undivided attention, strip away the distractions that keep us from allowing him to heal and reform our motivations, ideas, habits, attitudes. Look upward. You have my attention. Third, take a faithful step forward. So inward, upward, and forward. We have to live our lives. We can't live them in the wilderness. We have to move. And most of the time, we'll have to move before all our questions are answered. We'll have to take a step before every doubt is resolved, before we know with 100% clarity what God's doing with us. And that step will need to be taken in faith. And it won't always be backed up by our feelings. It can be a small thing, conversation, a prayer, a resolution just to keep going. But we cannot allow ourselves to become spectators in the wilderness. 
I want to wrap up with two quotes from a book called Courage and Calling by Gordon Smith. Two quotes, and then we'll be done. First one is this. He says, There is hardly anything more critical to our personal vocational development as the nature of our response to difficulty, to the wilderness, setback, rejection, disappointment, or suffering. Hardly anything more important than how we respond. Ponder this. Ask God whether there are steps you can be taking. Even if you can't yet see the outcome. Second one. Everything depends on our response. Either we become angry, bitter, cynical in the wilderness, or through grace we become people of character and signals of hope in a dark and dispiriting world. My prayer is that God would use our time in the wilderness, whatever it looks like for you, even if you're not there, chances are you will be someday, to transform us into signals of hope. My prayer is that we can be people that testify to the goodness of God even as we wait. My prayer is that we would look to Jesus, who also spent time in the wilderness, but who didn't complain, but overcame the one who faced the wilderness, who kept the faith, who understands us and helps us in our weakness, who has gone ahead of us and calls us forward into a life of obedience and fullness and joy. Amen.